Lighthouse was designed to provide light in times of darkness and encourage unity through partnerships and collaborations on our unbiased all-in-one platform that integrates the best features of video hosting, social media, and e-commerce. Browse a creator's store while watching their video and check your newsfeed while continuing to watch the video. Create a post, build communities with groups, or make a custom page. Shop your favorite products while continuing to watch the video and simply close the video player at any time. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Hi, welcome to Kingdom of Context. This is our Friday night series, Milk and Meats. I'm your host, Sean. Thanks for joining me tonight. We're going to be doing a Q&A for the episode tonight. Uh, just kind of getting back to taking your questions. So the cool thing about the software we have available right now is that I can actually take your questions live. So I'm going to put on the bottom of the screen here, guys, this is our call-in link. All right. And I'm also going to put this in the live chat as well. Okay. So oh. you guys can use this to call in and speak with me live. As always, please make sure you have uh, clothes on. Make sure that uh, you're ready to be on camera because that's that's what's going to happen is I'll actually put you on camera with me and we'll talk about your question live and I'll do my best to answer it. I don't claim to know everything, but I've studied the book for quite some time and um, over two decades at this point. And I just do my best to let the Holy Spirit lead us tonight and do my best to try to answer all the questions I can. So I uh, just want to thank everybody for being here. There's looks like the chat's already lively. Um, Lost Anarchist is here. Michelle M. Presley Lundquist. Welcome, welcome. Andy Pandy's back. George Washington. Rafa Benavi. Child of the Most High. Blossom. Earl Rogers. Indo. Welcome, everybody. Nabi Sky is here. AC. Welcome back. Mike Lascala. Welcome. Great Deception is back. Welcome. Jasmine W., Kathy, Mark Allen, Marsha, Miss Marsha's back. Uh, Grass Food, Clayton Linhart, welcome back, brother. Lots of folks in the chat tonight. Sean M. is back. Morgan Kirkendall, Maxim Lavrov is back. Welcome, brother. As always, uh, thank you to all the admins and the moderators in the chat that are keeping it, you know, keeping it civil, keeping it loving. Um, I really appreciate you guys being in here to, to kind of help facilitate, you know, good discourse in the live chat, keep people on point. So we will, um, I dropped two things here. I'm going to, I better put this 
you know, I wonder if YouTube even allows me, I, don't, I wonder if the average viewer can even see the call-in link while we're doing a live, a live chat. I'm not sure if it can or not, but just to, just to make sure I'm going to put it in the, the video description anyway. So if you're just turning, tuning in to watch this, This is, a, this is a call in link that's only good for tonight. Okay, so I just put it in the video description as well. It's in the live chat. It's literally at the bottom of my screen, scrolling by, and I'm going to leave it up the whole show. If you want to call in, that's how you do it. Looks like we got our first caller tonight, guys. It's the bandit, but oh, they just dropped out of the studio. I guess they're having uh, connection issues. All right, guys, let me know if you have a question. Um, that you want to call in for. Um, I'm looking through the chat. As always, if you're going to do a question, do it like Miss Kathy does it right here, okay? She's asking in all capitalization. That's how I can see it quickly when I'm scanning through the chat or the moderators can see it. So I appreciate you putting your question in all caps. What are your, She's asking, what are your thoughts on Andrew Hoy's domed Michigan, which is the tabernacle, his idea and his teaching on the domed tabernacle? Um, I haven't studied every specific word about his teaching, but what I have seen about it, over the last two or three years, um, I don't see any huge problems with the actual text of what's described in Exodus um, that would negate what he's putting forward. So um, I do think it's interesting that he claims that he went to Israel um, and tried to actually ask rabbis uh, about scholarship on the tabernacle itself. And there was just not any at all. There was very limited information from the rabbis that he could find. Um, so therefore he was kind of pioneering this type of research on his own. So honestly, I don't, I don't see a huge theological issue with the specific um, shape of the tabernacle itself. It would make a lot of sense to be honest with you. If it, uh, from what I've heard him explain about the, the way the fabrics are lined up and not overlapping and not getting too hot and all this different things. Um, and also, you know, the, the don't, the firm at Amos nine, six and a whole bunch of other places, the creation model itself um, is patterned in a dome shape. So the father, we know the father likes that design. I think it's interesting. So uh, unfortunately, sister, that's the best I can offer on that. All right. looks like we have our first caller in. It's the bandit. How you doing, brother? Thanks for calling in. What's up, brother? How you doing, man? Good, good. What's up? What's your question? Uh, man, uh, I have a question about the Antichrist. What name do you think he's going to go by? Oh. Know, we know, we know Jesus' name, real name is Yeshua, but what do you think the Antichrist is going to go by? Well, I think the the people who know who he is, as far as the bad guys who are waiting for his return, they know that he's the former Nimrod, and they used to call him a variety of different names through different cultures. So he was referred to as Apollyon by the Greeks. He's referred to as Osiris by the Egyptians, Ninurta by the Babylonians. So he had a variety of names. He was um, generically referred to as Shamash or Baal. So I think that um, depends on who you're talking about and what they might call him. All yeah. of them, though, will recognize him as the same guy. That's why the, the 10 kings of the, the 10 big kingdoms of the world, they give their authority to him eventually at the end of his reign, as, as Revelation 18 talks about. So um, I think uh, ultimately his name specifically, he's, I don't think, you know, what they may call him behind the scenes as they're dealing with him may not mm -hmm. be the name he comes out and announces publicly in front of the TV. Right, right. You know okay. what I'm yeah, yeah, I know. What, what about you? What What do you think? What name do you think you should be called by? I I don't. I'm not really sure. I'm not 100 percent sure. I was just kind of asking. Um, you know, I, I, uh, you know, since uh, I, 
was pondering on the idea that he might go by the name Jesus because, you know, Jesus's real name is Yeshua and kind of like him setting himself up in, in the temple and all that. I don't know. I don't know. It's just an idea. I know, man. I know, that's a common or it's a popular in the last five years. That's a popular theory amongst certain uh, communities that are uh, specifically like tour based communities. I disagree mm -hmm. with it largely. Simply because I know I know this is an unpopular stance, but that you know the actual words translate. That's the the father in Genesis eleven. He's the one that created all the languages. He knows that words uh, and names translate. My name in French is Jean, right? I've got more okay. like this Irish adaptation of it with an S of Sean. Um, in in Spanish, my name would be Juan, told with a okay. J, right? So suddenly, because I put a J in my name, am I suddenly you know? Correct. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like that right. there people understand how how uh, the name, the Hebrew name of Yeshua or even Yehoshua, depends on how you want to do it, how that translates over time through the Latin up to the Greek into the English. I mean, that's it's a traceable thing throughout history. So um, unfortunately, I disagree with the with the, the theory out there that claims that uh, the Antichrist will, will appear and try to be Jesus. And that's actually right. um, that theory, from what I can trace, has been formulated by people who take the ascension of Isaiah, which is a specific apocryphal work from the sixth century AD, mm. and they take specific uh, passages from that book and extrapolate this idea that the Antichrist will come back as the calling himself Jesus, right? Okay. Um, I disagree with it for a bunch of reasons. For one, for the premise of where they even get that, that theory, which is based off the ascension of Isaiah. If you go check out our Honor of Kings series in my playlist and go to season three, uh, we actually review the Ascension of Isaiah, and we there's a lot of theological problems with that work, both both mm -hmm. of what it claims in prophecy, as well as its uh, consistency of theology, as well as its consistency in historical manuscripts. So I that that's one of the bigger issues that I have with that theory is it's based off of bad translations of words or or people refusing to acknowledge that words do translate, and it's also based right, off right. Of, off a book that I would never call scripture, a book that it a book that contradicts itself so often and theologically is so consistent. I would never formulate that theory. I don't okay. think, I, I think he's called in second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight and nine, the antichrist is called a man of lawlessness. He's called right. the destroyer in revelation nine. Um, also a bad and Apollyon or the actual physical Hebrew and Greek names for that. The Bible itself does not call him Jesus or, yeah, the, trans okay. or the transliterary name of that. The Bible gives right. him a name. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, so that's where that's sure. where I just try to stick with what the words say. And uh, because when I when I step off into some of these other theories, it gets really tangled. Yeah. You know? Yeah. OK. All right. Yeah. That's just something I heard. Uh, I was watching some other videos that I was doing and I was, yeah. was kind of playing with it in my head. So I was wanted to get your input on that. Yeah, man. Hopefully that was helpful to you. Yes. Yes. Appreciate you, Thanks. brother. Thanks, man. Mm -hmm. Bye. All right, guys. Uh, I think someone else tried to call in while he was talking. Go ahead and call back in. You can see uh, the link is scrolling at the bottom of the screen. And um, let me see here. I think there was a question I missed in the live chat. Sean M is asking, I watched Tovia Singer to understand the contrary view, but he is so convincing about his point of view. Will you be doing another video about the Judaism point of view soon? Uh, well, I I did a I did one specifically on Tovia Singer and our Kingdom Cast playlist. Um, I've done a lot of videos about Judaism's point of view on specific topics. So if you have a specific topic 
that you that you're questioning about um that that would probably help me answer your question better because i don't know exactly which view you, you specifically think i mean other than judaism's view of denying yeshua right which we don't do here at kingdom of context we think that he is uh, the son of God, who we will call God, who we do call God, because that's the that's the title and place of rulership and authority that the son of God was given by the father. And we do believe, as John 4, 14 says, that he was sent by the father to be our Messiah and our high priest, as Hebrews, all of Hebrews expounds. So, you know, with that, we would disagree on that large theological stance with Tovia Singer or any rabbi from Judaism. So but if you have a more specific question, Sean, I'd love to address it. Please type it out. Um, Andy Pandy is asking, is there any flesh and blood in heaven? How? Why would there be sacrifices in heaven? Well, here's the biggest thing, brother. We get our faith and our theology from the scriptures, right? Everyone agrees. Seems like a silly statement, but with certain topics like the one you're asking about, unfortunately, that's something I have to remind folks, right? That we get our theology and our ideas about who God says he is and what God says he does. We get them from God's words, not from our our ideas, right? Not from our mental. We don't lean on our own understanding, but we lean on what he tells us, right? What he explains. So he explains that in his kingdom in heaven above, there are there's animals that are prepared for meals. And this is a part of his, what he called his Torah, his law, his instructions for right behavior and for fellowship. So we see this. Um, all throughout prophecy okay if we want to talk like we're in the here and now but if we want to look forward we see it in prophecy explained to us in ezekiel chapter 45 we have both pentecost and passover which is the feast of unleavened bread we have both of those mentioned and the animal sacrifices that are being used in the kingdom of heaven for those sacrifices right because all those feasts which are called sabbaths are both feasts and they're eternal and they're not going away this is expounded upon a little bit because 23, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, and then also Numbers 28 29. Connected to the quote-unquote feasts are animals that we would prepare in a proper way before us and the Father to have a meal and fellowship with the Father. So this is um, not all the sacrifices are about sin. So therefore, there is a good reason why the prophet Ezekiel, while prophesying words from the Father to mankind, would explain in Ezekiel 45, that there is both Passover and uh, Shavuot, Pentecost, being kept in heaven or in the kingdom of heaven, even right. And this is Isaiah. 4, this is Ezekiel forty-five, two chapters earlier in Ezekiel forty-three. We just literally have the interior tabernacle of the temple where the, the spirit of God is dwelling, right? Where this amazing place where He claims is the place where He will rest His feet while He sojourns amongst Israel. This is the kingdom come. So within that place, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew refers to it, the new Jerusalem, as your, as Revelation refers to it, and also Zion, as Isaiah refers to it, in that place, there is an altar for meals to be created between mankind, the priesthood, and the Father. This is an eternal ordinance. This is the eternal behavior of the Father that he asks us to disciple in. Also, another prophet speaking the words of the Father to mankind, Zechariah 14, Tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles. So this one gets very interesting because it says that the Feast of Tabernacles will be literally forced. I mean, through, through coercion of rain, um, it will require all the nations of the earth to come to the New Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, wherein we are told what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. Sacrifices literally 
and I, I think maybe a lot of people use that word sacrifices in such a negative connotation because they think it's a wasted concept. They think it's something that had to die unnecessarily. This is literally just a meal being made. But if it's made with the right person, with the right heart, with the right ingredients at the right time, on the right altar and, and given to the father, therefore it falls into this biblical context of a sacrifice. But it's still just a meal being cooked up, right? It's like a barbecue between you and the father. It's fellowship. And that's what he calls eternal. This is why Yeshua in Luke 22 and Matthew 26 references that we will keep Passover in the kingdom. We all know that Passover is only defined as an actual meal, whether a goat or a lamb. So it's a big deal to the father. Um, it's a part of his eternal word. So this, there's a ton of scriptures I just gave. Um, and there's even more. I've done lots of videos on this that would expound on why there would be sacrifices in heaven. Now, the, the, early, the first part of your question, which says, is there... If there is no flesh and blood in heaven, that you're taking that I'm guessing from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul mentions that there'll be no flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God, because he just finished explaining in the previous part of 1 Corinthians 15 about the nature of you're born in the flesh. But then at the resurrection, you get this uh, this glorified body that's made of spirit. This is what Yeshua was trying to expound in Nicodemus in John 3, uh, also in Luke chapter 20, verse 36, also in Matthew 22, verse 29 and 30. So this is the idea of understanding the, what is promised to us through the resurrection. So this idea that you do get now a body of flesh, but it's not made of the same type of thing. It's not made of the dirt of the earth. So therefore, when you get the spiritual glorified body that's promised to you, like Yeshua receives, that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24 says he's the first roots of the first resurrection. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 28, expounds that we will be glorified as he was glorified, because this is what's promised to us. When we get that type of spiritual glorified body, we still have tangible flesh to touch. This is why he tells Thomas to touch his side in John chapter 19. The Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 51, verses 8 through 11, expresses how when we inherit the New Jerusalem, the, the world that is promised to us, the kingdom that is promised to us that will eventually descend, we will also be made like the angels so that we can transform into any, any form that we desire. This is why the, the Yeshua exemplified in his resurrection body. He can come and go out of a locked room with the door shut, right? He can disappear, reappear. He can move like the wind. This is what he was trying to express to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. This is what we see the angels exemplify. That type of body they have is called a spiritual body. It's one that does can present itself to where you could touch it like flesh, but it's not made of the same type of flesh and blood that you and I are made currently while we're born of the dirt of the earth, right? So it's a, you have to understand the nature of the resurrection, which is why Paul tries to explain that before he makes that statement. So therefore, there are animals in heaven. We see in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, I believe it is. That we, you know, we have the promise of the the wolf laying down with the lamb. We have the promise of the of a baby in the kingdom that might be playing near an, a snake hole, an outer soul. We have the idea that, um, and I can't remember if it's in Jeremiah twenty three or thirty three, um, where it talks about um, you'll be safe from wild animals in the kingdom because you can. Um, man, I, I just made a meme just like last week about this verse. I'm just, it's slipping my mind. Um, but this idea that you just like when the kingdom comes, you'll be able to go sleep out in the forest in peace if you want, and the wild animals won't hurt you. So we know in the in in heaven above, they have animals they use for keeping the law. The angels themselves keep the law. We're even told specifically in, in Hebrews chapter eight verses one through five, Yeshua himself brings sacrifices of gifts to the Father in the heavenly tabernacle right now. 
because that's where he is, right? So there are animals in heaven. They're, they maybe just aren't made of the same dirt like we are. They're made of more of a spiritual type body like an angel is, if, if I could put it like that. Um, and I'm going the best I can off of, of knowing there are sacrifices, there are animals in heaven, but I'm trying to surmise from all those descriptions, are they truly made of the bodies that were promised or are they made of flesh, right? Because remember what the verse that you're quoting is one that says that no flesh and blood shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Inherit. That's what we inherit. It's Revelation 21, 3 through 7. Uh, the, the saints inherit the new Jerusalem to come, the land that descends through the firmament down to where our plane, and that's what we inherit. So if there are already animals that have been created and placed in the other layers, layers of, the, of the heaven firmament above for the angels to use, that's not their inheritance. Just like the earth down here is not the inheritance of animals. Does that make any sense? The word and the, and the descriptions of the idea of inheriting things only applies in the covenant to mankind. We will inherit an eternal glorified body at the resurrection. We will inherit the land of promise called the New Jerusalem at the resurrection. So we have to, I know what you're trying to ask, but um, the reason I'm trying to you know, be thorough and breaking it down is because you've mixed together some ideas without its full context. So hopefully and lovingly, that's a, a good thorough answer for you. And hopefully it encourages you in your faith and your understanding. Looks like we got another caller, Mark. Mark is here. I don't know if his connection just dropped or not. Mark, Mark, can you hear me, brother? Can you hear me? Okay, I think he got Mark. Try to call back in, buddy. I think uh, I think your for whatever reason your connection dropped. Okay, yes. Um, Micah D'Andrea is asking, what's the context of Jubilees 19, 22 to 30? And if, or excuse me, Judges 19. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the Civil War. And this is going to be about the, uh, the, the, the Levite's concubine who basically, like there was a Levite, like a traveling Levite who was basically like Levite for hire. And <laughs> so he's not, he's not following the law. <laughs> this guy, he's just like, he's just like, um, exploiting the fact that he's a Levite and people think that he's a priest, but, um, all right. So you're asking about nine, 22 through 30 specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the part where, um, what, it, what calls worthless men here, let me put this on screen for us. Okay. All right. So what it calls worthless men here, in a lot of translations, that means someone that's not doing the Torah. That's someone that is uh, wicked, right? They're unrighteous. And this is what was going on in this in this territory, in this region, with the tribe of Benjamin during the days of this moment in Judges, right? And this is not to isolate or single out Benjamin, because they had good times and they had bad times, just like all the other tribes did. And unfortunately, there's a strange anti-Paul movement that just claims, oh, the tribe of Benjamin was wicked, and Paul was from the Benjaminite. False equivocations poorly cherry-plucked ideas out of scripture with no context. All the tribes of Israel struggled, even the priesthood, even the Levites, they struggled in rebellion from time to time. They had good times where they were faithful to Father and Covenant, and they had bad times. So this is a situation here where their Judah or Benjamin's having some bad times, um, and they're going to create a civil war by this action. So there's this priest that's running around. He's not a priest. He's actually just a Levite. It doesn't really call him a priest. If you go up further in the chapter, 
but there was this Levite that was running around and he ends up finding himself landing in the, in the area of the hill country of Ephraim. And uh, this guy says, Hey man, I come into my house. Right. And so he's there, he's staying, he has his, his uh, woman with him and uh, the, these men come up and they, they want to uh, act wickedly as it says. And it says, I'll just read out real quick. So he says, while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless men surrounded the house, pushing one another at the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house and the old man saying, bring out the man who entered your house that we may have relations with him. This is very similar to what we read in Genesis 19 with uh, the, the men that saw the angels go to, to Lot's house in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're trying to, you know, go have relations with him as well. This is a sign of lawless, wicked behavior that's that's carrying on in this culture that is uh, metastasized. Well, I should say that is um, that is uh, infected the tribe of Benjamin to the point where they have men literally behaving like this. So verse 23 says, then the man, the owner of their house went out to them and said, no, my brothers, please don't act so wickedly. Since this man has come to my house, do not commit this vile sin. Here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Please let me bring them out and rape them and do them in what you ever wish, but do not commit the act of vile of sin against this man. But the men will not listen. So the man seized his concubine and brought her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her all night, all morning. They let her go at the approach of dawn. And as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. So the, if you're asking what the context is, it's it's uh, men doing wickedness against other men of Israel. And as a result of this, a woman dies hor horribly. And the men who did the violent act are held responsible. This is literally what causes a civil war. And I think it's like 25,000 people of uh, the Benjamin tribe of Benjamin are killed as a result of this uh, when they engage in civil war. So it's a, it's a horrible situation. Um, it's, this is no, no men, no person, not the man of the owner of the house, not the Levite and not the men who came to, to take the Levite. None of those four major players in this story are doing anything righteous. They're all doing unrighteousness. That's the thing I guess to remember. So, all right, hey, Mark, Mark is, is calling, calling in. in. Hey, what's hey, up, Mark? What's up, Mark? Turn, hey, down your, down your, turn down your, turn down your, uh, TV. Uh, TV there you go. Buddy. What's up, brother? How are you doing? What's your question? Um, okay. Sorry about that. My phone died. Like right when you were saying that, no worries. I had a question. Um, I guess like kind of two parts. One, I was curious, what is your opinion on the um, new moon slash month slash Kodesh argument or debate? And also, I wanted to get your take on Enoch seventy three, like verse you one got, through. You got, you got, you got two, two big, big questions. questions. Is what you're saying. <laughs> I well, kind of big, I guess. Yeah, these are these are full length, like four part four series, series studies. studies. I'm going to do my best to answer these, answer these uh, as, quickly uh, as quickly as possible. As possible. Is, there is there any way, way that, that you can, can hear me by turning, by turning down, down whatever, whatever speaker you got in the background? In the background. I'm going to give I don't know. If um, you I'm not sure, Sean, because I'm on my wife's phone. Okay. Okay. That's all right. That's all right. Well, let me let me well, take your first question real quick first. And if you don't mind, could you put your volume on mute so that people can still understand what I'm saying? Okay. Thanks, brother. So the the Kadesh, the new moon concept. Um, we've actually talked about this for a couple of years. Uh, there's some pretty interesting discrepancies that are uh, that go into this debate and this topic about the new moon. We actually are are still trying to coordinate with some other people, uh, my house ministries to do a show with them about this topic, because, uh, they've made some claims to us behind the scenes about where they got some of their information. And I would like to, you know, present that to everybody and let us all watch us have a discussion on this 
um, so that we can try to find an answer altogether. Um, some people believe that the Kodesh concept is of the new moon is, is an every month concept. Um, I don't. I believe it's an every four, every three months or every 91 days concept as Jubilee 6 expounds upon. Okay. And that's why you don't even get the introduction of the new moon in the canon of 66. You only get the introduction and the explanation of the idea of celebration of a new moon feast in Jubilee chapter 6. And it gives you a great explanation about it, right? Also, you've got in, in I think it's... Um, First Enoch chapter 83, there's a mention of new moons and explaining what it is. It's just, you know, the, in the phases and the cycle of the moon, when it, after it goes dark and then the light begins to shine upon it again. So that's when it describes the, the definition of a new moon. Now, here's the caveat, and this is why I'm, I'm trying to do my best to give you a quick summary. That's why I said it's a big question. Okay. All right. I'm sorry, buddy. I think your, your uh, phone dropped out again. Hopefully you'll be able to take uh, my answer to this offline. So, Real quick, this is why I said this is a huge topic that you're asking about. Um, it's actually, you know, would require multiple series of, of better. It would it would require more of time than I'm going to have to answer it tonight um, in this two or three minute answer I'm trying to give you real quick. But hopefully I'm going to give you a decent summary and, and try to assure you and anyone listening that um, we are still researching this and want to answer it. So what I do know definitively is that the new moon celebration is mentioned in the scripture, but not but in the canon of 66, it's not explained. It's only explained in Jubilees, is that it's a every three months, it's a celebration, and it was memorialized, if you will, upon different, you know, uh, landmark accomplishments during the, the year that Noah got on the boat and got off the boat. So every three months, every 91 days, uh, which is also consistent with uh, some things in First Enoch, there is this idea of the new moon. Now, the question becomes that everyone tries to ask in once you get to that third month, when do you actually celebrate the new moon? Right. This is why I said there's a lot of discrepancy and this is what we want to have a show to, to present this publicly uh, with uh, my house ministries. Um, uh, we just have to get together in our schedules. Um, they did say they want to do a show about this at some point. So we'll, we'll get to hopefully Lord willing, we'll get to that sooner than later. Uh, depends on our schedules. I've been really extra busy with uh, Lighthouse and a lot of other things, so I haven't been able to actually do it um, in in the timely manner like I would have liked. I wanted to do it a couple months ago. So hopefully after we do that show, we'll have a better definitive way with all the verses broken down for you, specifically according to a, um, a calendar model that you can understand better. But um, hopefully that's a, you know, it's a kind of a, it's not the, it's not the straightforward answer I'd like to give you right now, but uh, hopefully it just helps you understand that the new moon, uh, what I can definitively say, it's not every month. It's not the head of every month. It is the head. Uh, it possibly is the head of every three months. And that's what we're going to be talking about with our guests on that show. Okay, brother. brother. So we have uh, another question coming in from another caller real quick. It's uh, Marlo. What's up, brother? How are you doing tonight? Uh, Uncle Sean, what's up? Shalom. Hey, man. Yeah, nice, to to, nice to see you again. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do a lot of... Uh, I have a lot of dialogue with Tanakh and Torah only proponents. Yeah. And um, I know that, well, I've, I've, I'm probably like intermediate with regards to the idea of sacrifice and human sacrifice and atonement and stuff like that. And when I was, you know, I was going through my studies about human sacrifice because, you know, the, the whole idea of Yeshua comes up and whether or not that would have been a legitimate sacrifice uh, with Josiah, right. In second Kings chapter 23, I had a question on how you would, how you would exegete that in light of the idea that 
Yahuwah would not accept a human sacrifice because this is something that I read. I got stuck on. I wanted to see if I can get a little insight. If you if you go to chapter twenty three in Second Kings, yeah, yeah, and you mean when he when he takes the priests of Baal and he brings them on their own altars? Yeah. Hold on. Let me let me let me mute my mic so you don't get any feedback. But yeah, if you can exegete that for me real quick. Sure, brother. I'll put it on screen for everybody to follow along with us real quick. All right. So here we are in Second Kings twenty three, and this is remember Josiah's going through the land. He's cleaning out all the bell worshippers. That's that's context idea one. That's our fundamental idea here. So he's he's not going to an altar of the Lord and offering a human to the Lord. In fact, he's not offering anything to anybody. He's cleaning house. So what he does here is he goes and he finds, he brings out of the temple of the Lord all the utensils that have been made for Baal, for the Asherah, and all that. These are the things that the... Um, the people had, you know, the rebellious ones, right? The people that started worshiping Baal instead of Yahweh, they started putting things to Baal and to Asherah inside the temple of Yahweh, which is a huge no-no, right? So he's cleaning all this stuff out. And then it says, it goes on to verse five. It says, then he did away with the idolatrous priests. That means priests that are not doing anything to Yahweh. They're doing stuff for Baal. Whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places. The high places are the temples they built to Baal where they would have the, the, you know, the carousing and also the human sacrifice in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, as well as those who burned incense to Baal to the sun, moon, and constellations. It's a reference back to Jeremy 419, also first Enoch chapter eight and to all the remaining heavenly lights. He also brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brick Kidron. He's bringing it out because it's not supposed to be there in the first place. He's cleaning house, right? Uh, he took it to the Brook Kidron. He ground it to dust, threw it, uh, its dust on the graves of the common people. He tore down the cubicles of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where their women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Then he brought out all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Ger to Beersheba. And he tore down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were the ones left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread amongst their brothers. Okay. So these are the um, priests of the high places. This is not good people. Okay. Father doesn't have high places. This is Baal priests. Just like we see previously in the book of first Kings chapter 18, 19, where Elijah has to uh, confront the prophets of Baal, right? 400 of them. Right. So this is the same problem that's being addressed, you know, hundred years later with Josiah. Um, it says he also defiled Tophet, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. This is actually an uh, interesting reference in Isaiah chapter 30 as being an, uh, lake of, a version of the lake of fire on the ground, right? It's the king's place of burning. Uh, it's kind of a metaphoric, prophetic style place. So that no one would make his son or daughter pass through the fire from Molech, right? So now he's talking about he defiled it means he destroyed what they had set up for human sacrifice. Okay? This is... This is all these high places he's throwing down and destroying. This is just another one in verse 10, which is where they actually sacrifice to Molech, which is horrible, which is what they're told explicitly not to do in multiple places, right? He did away with the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord. By the, hey, how interesting is this? Huh? What does Deuteronomy 17, 17 tell us? As a king of Israel, do not multiply horses. So now we've got rebellious kings as the book of Kings is listing off a whole bunch of good and bad Kings, right? So they got rebellious Kings that had extra horses that they were doing what with, Oh, they were had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord. This is sun worship. This is not Yahweh worship. You see what I'm saying? They're worshiping Baal as a sun God. They're worshiping Molech, right? This is horrible stuff. 
um, by the chamber of Nathan Malek, the official, which was the, which was at the covered courtyard. He burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The king also tore down the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz. That's Jezebel and Ahaz, right, from the days of Elijah, uh, which the kings of Judah had made. That's horrible. They shouldn't have made that for him. The kings of Judah, the rebellious ones. And the altars which Manasseh, one of the worst kings of Israel's history, Manasseh had made in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord. And he smashed them there and threw their dust in the brook Kidron. The king defiled the high places that were opposite Jerusalem. So clearly the whole land was infested with places worshiping false gods, right? So he's going through and he's he's clearing house like this. They're hating on him right now. They do not like this guy, um, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction with Solomon, the king of Israel, built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians. It even mentions some of Solomon's transgressions. Right. So we know what first Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon had turned from father's heart because of his wives um, and for Shamash. That's one of the Canaanite gods. And for Milcom, another Canaanite god, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, he smashed the pieces to the memorial stones, cut down the ashram, filled their places with human bones. This is this does this is nowhere. All right. So here's the th part I think you're asking about. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel, the high place was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who misled Israel into sin. All that is bad stuff. Had made even the altar at the high place he tore down. He burned the high place, ground the remains to dust. He burned the Asherah. Now when jo Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain. He took men and took the bones. He he sent men and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it in accordance with the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. The one who proclaimed these things and he said, "What is this gravestone there that I see in the middle of the city?" He told him, "It's the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel." He said, leave him alone. No one is to disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the house of the prophet who came from Samaria. Then Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places, which were in the city of Samaria. When the kings of Israel had conducted, uh, constructed, provoking Lord anger, he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. And he slaughtered all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So here's the big, here's the big question. Here's the big thing. We see... Um, in first Kings chapter 19 or 18 and 19, we see Elijah does the Mount Carmel competition kind of thing, the showdown. And when he wins, when Yahweh wins, what do they do with those 400 prophets who are also priests? What do they do with those prophets of Baal? They slaughter them, right? They kill them. That was the punishment. That was the Deuteronomy 18 punishment, right? For trying to lead people away from Yahweh. So, and also for, you know, not letting a sorcerer live. <laughs> Exodus 21, right? These are sorcerers too, by the way, because people don't realize that. Committing mass sexual morality and bestiality and a whole bunch of other things, right? That Exodus 21, 22 explains, Leviticus 18 through 20 explains. Horrible stuff that they were doing, worshiping these false gods in these high places. So instead of, instead of, you know, he's going through, as you saw from that passage we read, he's going to different places, tearing down different altars and different geography around the land. So this isn't like a one-day event. This is systematic. He's going through, right? And he's taking these rebellious priests who are leading people to worship Molech and Baal and Ashtaroth and all that, and he's systematically killing them per Torah. And he's he's not taking their their human their bodies and taking them back to Jerusalem to the temple of the Lord and putting them on Yahweh's altar. He's literally just kind of defiling their own altars by putting the priests on. So. It's tit for tat, right? So you could say, look, when I when Elijah won and he took all those 400 prophets of Baal and his assistants went down the valley of Kidron and he slaughtered them there, 
they could have taken them to all their high places and slaughtered them there. But they were just being a little more efficient that day. They had other things happening. There was that wasn't the only battle in that war, right? As you read the the, the next chapter um, after that, after Mount Carmel experiments, um, Elijah has to run from Jezebel because she gathers some more forces and come after him. So the the story wasn't over. This is a position where Josiah's king. The story's over, so to speak, as far as like in this moment in time, Josiah's reinstating worship to Yahweh and he's tearing down all the high places of false worship to false gods. So he's he's won the the, the battle. This is what's called prevailing in, in military terms, where he's he's already won the battle. He has the power over everyone else now. Now he's going through and he's uh, prevailing. So he's doing all the detail, the dirty work details to, to clear out all the remnants of the enemy. So this is where. He, he could have taken all these priests and taken them down to Tophet, which is a place of burning. He could have taken them to the Valley of Kidron, where Elijah took the prophets of Baal and slaughtered them there. But instead, he's kind of being saucy about it. He's kind of being salty about it. And he's taking them to their own temples, their own high places, and he's killing them there. And then he's destroying their temples and their high places. See what I'm saying? So imagine the, you know, Josiah was uh, extremely zealous for the father. And so imagine taking some dude that had that had previously you knew that he was a priest of Baal and he previously had been taking your countrymen, your, your, your maidens, your, your women and your children and killing them and doing horrible things with male prostitutes and female prostitutes and all kinds of nonsense that the occult does. And you get to go exact justice on him. So Josiah is taking these dudes and he's like, all right, you guys, y'all using this place to kill people. I'm going to kill you here. Then it's kind of like poetic justice, right? They're going to get killed either way. And he's not doing a sacrifice to Baal. He's doing judgment against the false gods and against their priesthood. So he's not he's not alter offering up any kind of sacrifice to Baal or Molech or Asherah or to Yahweh. He's literally just exacting the justice of the Torah in a kind of a salty way. Which, yeah, the father doesn't reprimand him for it. In fact, the father blesses him for getting all the high right. prices right. and all the high, and all the false priesthood out. So, hey, yeah, thank, uh, yeah. Sometimes I just need it articulated with that level of apt you that's know, all right man yeah yeah appreciate it yeah you know what's so funny though is if we were back in that those days you and i you know maybe you were from the tribe of naftali and i was from the tribe of you know simeon or something like uh, this kind of contextual concept like it wouldn't take us we would it would just be second nature to us we would know all these wording that we have to like look up the means of the words and look for context and cross-reference with different books and all that stuff this is our challenge now looking back from a totally different culture, it would have been like, we would have known exactly, we'd have seen the roving bands of uh, uh, guards with, with Josiah run around destroying the high places and like looking at the hilltops around Israel and seeing all the, all the temples to Baal, to Baal burning. We didn't know exactly what's going on. <laughs> it wouldn't even have been thought, you know what I'm saying? So, because the, what's interesting about all this is that everywhere throughout the Torah, the father continually tells them in the Torah, don't worship these false gods. Don't offer your kids to mole. They're not real gods. What are you doing? You know, like that's horrible. It's wickedness. Don't don't conjugate with animals. Don't conjugate with your with your mother-in-law and with your, with your sister. Like that's what are you doing? Like that's not that's not my ways, and that's not what you should do. And this is this is nothing but destruction for you. This is all this is bad for you. But yet, every time throughout uh, throughout history of Israel and through other nations, by the way, but this is you know obviously the scriptures mostly focus on Israel. Is you have goodness is established for a specific amount of time and immediately satan comes in trying to turn the hearts of the weak to start getting them to worship 
false idols, right? Because there's involved with it is coveting and greed. Because as, as we see in the book of Isaiah, a lot of the, the northern house was drawn away to make covenants with Assyria because they coveted the wealth and the, the lavish lifestyle of what they thought the Assyrians were having. Well, what happens when they made a covenant with Assyria? They started practicing their religion too, which was worshiping Baals. So it, that's why you have false idolatry um, associated with coveting and greed. <clears throat> so a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the second commandment about don't worship in idols is actually directly related to the 10th commandment about don't covet. Right. So like you, you have to, it's the, all, it's all connected, but it's all the mindset and the heart of the person that wants to move away from Yahweh. Just trying to say, look, man, just mind your own business, live your own life. Don't kill people, love your neighbor, treat people like you, like you want to treat yourself. Worship me on these feet. Have a good time at these feasts with me. Just keep it simple. You know what I'm saying? They, but people struggle to do that when the enemy comes in and says, well, look what they got over there. Like, look at that. That's not nice. Don't you want that too? All right. Well, you can't do that with Yahweh because he doesn't let you do this or that, or that which is all a lie because you can be prosperous with Yahweh too. Just look at Abraham. <laughs> look at Josiah. Look at, I mean, look at like a ton of people in the scriptures, you know, that um, <clears throat> they were prosperous following Yahweh, but the enemy tries to lie to people. And how does he lie to people? He lies to people who don't know the words of Yahweh. So this is why Mal Malachi chapter two, also a prophet in the time period of Isaiah, the priests are being reprimanded for not teaching the people the Torah very well. This is why it's a, it's a, it's a team effort, if you will, right? The teachers of the word, they got to be diligent. They got to be contextually correct. They got to be right. The people, they need to have their hearts open to hear it and their ears ready to, you know, to, their hands ready to do the work of the father. They need to be willing to do what's right. So there's, it's like a, you know, that's why it says teachers have a bigger, stricter, punishment, right? James 3, 1, not all should become teachers, so we know they'll be judged harsher. This idea that Malachi chapter 2, the priests who are all supposed to be teachers, they're being reprimanded by the Father, like, you guys are supposed to be literally my mouthpiece. You're supposed to be explaining the words of the Lord to people. You're supposed to be turning hearts back in repentance. You're supposed to be helping these people understand how to live. So if you don't do your job very well, they're going to go off and worship the bells and do all this destructive stuff. So it was a team effort within this, and, and there's multiple places, as we see in Isaiah and Ezekiel, both before and after the days of Josiah in this passage here, where the priesthood themselves were rebelling against the father. So the priesthood themselves, where do you think these priests came from? That he just went and killed. You talking about the ones that set up the Asherah poles. You talking about Josiah. So we just read in that passage, the Kings of Judah had set up false high places. Right. Right. Israel. And the rulers of the people, like what Proverbs talks about, when the rulers of the people doing righteousness, the people cry out in the streets. Well, in Israel, the rulers of the people were the priesthood, not just the king and the governor. The most common rulers was the actual Levites who were supposed to be a part of the priesthood to know the Torah, to teach the people the Torah. They also were given positions of judgeship so they could actually decide on matters, as Exodus 18 explains. So therefore, when they rebel, you got serious moral decay in the society. And it's just a matter of time before there's either warfare or you're besieged by your enemies or there's famine or just go through the Deuteronomy 28, right? It's just a matter of time before all these things start happening. So that's, this is what Josiah is dealing with. All those things had happened. All the bad stuff had happened because even the priests had turned on Yahweh. And it was it was like he's trying to come in here and make a big statement. <laughs> so hopefully I'm sorry for the, the long answer, but hopefully it's helpful. For, man. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. And God uh, yeah. bless. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks.
we'll check the chat real quick, see if there's any other questions. Like as always, guys, I know if you do have a question, please put it in all capitalization so I can see it as I scroll through the chat. Um, there's a lot, a lot of people talking in the chat. I don't have it's hard to discern sometimes the questions. Okay, so uh, Resist Worldly is asking, I've seen so much residue, proof of newspapers and drawings, et cetera, of the lion lamb. Okay, <laughs> with the lamb and Isaiah, why are somebody denying the supernatural Bible changes? Because it's not changed. Um, I, I've got people misquoting the Bible. Does not mean the Bible has always said that. Um, we've actually, my wife and I actually have Bibles um, from, you know, a long time ago, and they do have the wolf and the lamb. All right, I apologize. Hey, shirts are made. Newspapers could print something out of context or misquote it. They do it all the time. Uh, people make memes and pass around scriptures and misquote stuff all the time. I see it all the day long. Um, I, 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 we do not hear it. Kingdom context lovingly. We do not ascribe to the Mandela effect and we do not ascribe to the enemy being able to supernaturally just change his word um, without, you know, any kind of process involved so that in some magical mystical way, as the Mandela effect subscribes to, um, we, we don't subscribe to that. I'm sorry. All right, guys. So let me see if there's another quick question. All right. Spirit and truth. Looks like you had a question here saying, um, does baptism literally wash away sin? Well, well, no. I mean, no, of course not. Um, it's it's an outward cleansing as far as, you know, they had to wash themselves to step before the presence of God at the tabernacle when they came before to offer their sacrifice and uh, to have that fellowship meal like we mentioned earlier. So we see this all the way, you know, all the way. It's, it's actually the eternal, a part of the eternal law of God is just to make sure you're clean before you come before the Father's presence. Um, we see it all the way back to Genesis 35 with Jacob and his family getting ready to go into Bethel. We also see it in Exodus 19, Moses being told to tell the people to wash themselves uh, before they come before the mountain where, where the father was going to have his angel show up and speak. So, um, and of course, throughout the Torah itself and, and Leviticus, you know, 12, 13 or 14, 15, they need to be washed and cleansed of, you know, certain natural bodily functions before they can come before the father. So this would be a, yeah, and that's that's where baptism came from. It's the mikvah. It's just the washing yourself, your outer body. So this is this would be why, you know, it, it it wasn't just a once in your life type of thing. It was an ongoing, outward, physical thing before you came before the presence of the Father. Um, the it's the thing that literally washed. And there's the, what the reason why I'm spending time on this question is because a lot of people don't understand what it means when our when the Bible speaks about our sin being removed. So in the here and now. We have sin atoned for. The word atonement means a covering over. We have sin atoned for in the here and now. But as far as the sin that's credited to our soul's uh, ledger, if you will, that is only forever removed and never seen by the Father with Yeshua's mediation of his priesthood, specifically at the moment Revelation 3, 5, where he calls our names out before the Father and raises us to eternal life in a new glorified body, which has no sin in its ledger ever and will never that's why it's called an incorruptible body by paul and it's uh it is this uh beautiful promise of the of the covenant is that we get resurrected into this 
amazing body that will never sin again. This is what First Enoch chapter 5, verse 6 through 9 expounds upon. Also, Jeremiah 31, uh, 33 and 34 expounds upon this idea, which is repeated by Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11 through 13. But it is the promise of the resurrection that we, and that happens specifically through the priesthood of Yeshua, our Messiah. This is what he does when he redeems our soul from Sheol and gives us a new body. And we get to go to the new Jerusalem to live in his house with him. It's, we only get to do that in this glorified, eternal body that cannot sin with his law written on our hearts, so we will never sin. That is when our sin is fully removed forever from us. Until then, it's always just covered over by Yeshua's priesthood. So um, hopefully that's a it's a very quick answer. We've done you know longer videos on this, but um, it's a two-part answer, right? One, that was actually a practical instruction for washing your outer body, and two is one that's like more of an eternal concept about how sin is applied to your soul and how that gets taken off of your ledger as you get a new heart, a new body, and you're resurrected to eternal life because of Yeshua. Jimmy on Kenobi is asking, any thoughts on keeping second Passover since we aren't in the land? Um, that is, you know, it's a great question. You know, it's it's one of those where if you couldn't make first Passover because you couldn't get to the temple, well, then you would you had that second Passover attempt. Or if you were unclean and you had to miss Passover, Maybe your father just died and you had to bury him. So now you're you're unclean for seven days so that therefore you would attend second Passover. Right. So as a result of this, um, I mean, you you're not in the land. So therefore that there's no standing tabernacle. There's no ordained priesthood. Um, if I think that would just be a conscious decision up to you. But what you feel the father puts on your heart, if for whatever reason uh, you didn't celebrate Passover, maybe you just forgot. OK, well, you got a second chance. We're still just practicing a memorial at this point because we're in the prophecy of being scattered and dispersed uh, everywhere under the heaven, as which was prophesied. And we're not drawn back to the actual promised land. And, and at this point, as prophecy is as clearly detailed with lots and lots of scripture, we've done lots of videos on it. Uh, the only other tabernacle that we're going to convene at for feast days is going to be the New Jerusalem. And that only comes with the second coming of Yeshua at the beginning of the millennial reign. So therefore, I see what you're saying. The context isn't quite right. So as with all the feasts that we keep a memorial, right, which is us practicing what we're going to be doing forever and eternity, um, we do our best. So with with Passover, you got like two opportunities to practice in case somehow the first one gets messed up. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you, Jimmy on. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, who the heck is Nate? What's the last part? S S three R Ag three. I don't know if that's supposed to be like a. Anyway, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you. I used to live in Oklahoma. I used to live in Tulsa for a long time. I used to live in Ardmore for a long time. I even lived in a small town called Woka for for a while, for like four years. I used to. I grew up basically mostly in Oklahoma, but also some in West Virginia. All right. So it looks like we have um, Incarnate Unlimited is asking. If I don't quit smoking, well, will I not be forgiven for it if I can't turn from it before it's too late? I'm trying to overcome my weakness of flesh, but having a hard time. Uh, here's the interesting thing. Uh, we should we should treat our bodies well, okay? Smoking is one of those things where there's no specific instruction in Scripture that tells you not to smoke. There's also no specific instruction in Scripture that tells you not to snort cocaine, right? I would suggest both are bad for your body. Um. So I wouldn't do either one. Obviously, you're trying to quit smoking, you know, uh, but same thing with this. Like I'm trying to 
cut back on how much sugar I intake. You know, some people die of diabetes and heart disease faster than some people that smoke tobacco and, or even just normal bad cigarettes all their life. So the body reacts differently to these things. Um, we're not given specific instructions in the scripture about which substances that are natural substances, but it's about how we ingest those natural substances, whether in too much in excess or in a different form, like a cigarette that, that might be harmful to us, right? We're not given any specific instruction in scripture as far as, you know, specifically how to do that. The general premise is you want to treat your body like the temple of God, right? You want to treat it, treat it, um, uh, with respect and you want to you know love yourself right this is why the, the, the command of love your neighbor is you love yourself where well, you do have to love yourself right so we understand that and this is what you said you're trying to do so kudos to you that's awesome keep at it stay strong do your best uh to get accountability do your best to you know to try to if, if there's any products that are not equally as harmful that you can wean yourself off of whether you know whatever you're trying to do may the father give you the strength to do that um but i don't see you being in some kind of salvational style sin does that make sense? Because there is no specific instruction on what you're doing. So I'm, you're not going to hear from me a hardline stance on if you don't stop smoking before you die, that you're going to somehow going to not be saved. Uh, I'm not saying that. And I don't think that's the way I don't see anything in the scriptures that would, that would support preachers who preach that. I think that's a personal decision. The preachers have made a big deal about, and I don't, I don't think that it, that's the way it goes. So um, you can literally get the same effects of smoking by if you cooked out all your food all your life and stood over the grill as your food's cooking and got that got that smoke up in your face, or if you went camping all the, all of your life as well as cooked your food over an open campfire and you got all that smoke coming right into your face as you're camping uh, over an open fire and cooking your food. I mean, you, you're literally going to get that same style of uh, smoke inhalation if you will, that could affect you over time. So no, I don't think it's a salvation issue. Um, clearly if it's hurting you, it's affecting you. You're trying to, you're trying to stop it. You're trying to get over it. May the Lord, you know, give you strength to do that. You know, that's, that's a noble thing. So keep at it, brother. Okay. Um, Endo is asking about Sabbath keeping, uh, from Romans 14. I'm not, if you could Endo, I know you probably asked this a few minutes ago. I've, I've been answering a lot of questions, but um, if you could, could you please give me a more specific question? Because I don't exactly, I don't want to spend 10 minutes elaborating on what I think you're asking. You're asking about Romans 14, 5 in, re in relationship to the Sabbath. So I'm going to put this on screen for everyone to read along with us. And so this is Romans 14, 5. One person values one day over another, another values every day the same. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and the one who eats does so with regard to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. The one who does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Um, well, personally, the context, which is these following two verses as well, um, also the previous verses about judging other servants of the Lord, and specifically about eating food and vegetables and meat. And f I mean, there was a, he's dealing with um, pagan pagan ways. This is, this is a triggering concept to a lot of people. Um, but it's, this is not talking about the Sabbath for one, uh, just throwing that out there right there. It's talking about people that were weak in the faith that were new in the faith that were struggling about eating meats, uh, because there was a large group of sectarian sects of different types during the days, uh, in the middle East, also in Egypt and, and obviously in, um, in ancient India that they said it was bad to eat meat. Right. And that kind of philosophy, was born out of pagan 
religions. Um, and it's making a resurgence today. I've done a whole show on, on veganism on the podcast on kingdom cast. So yeah, that's, this isn't about the Sabbath. In my opinion, this is all about people that, that Paul's addressing these again, these would be Romans. So they're not, these are converts from, uh, the Roman empire that he's addressing in this particular chap in this particular letter after he's already tried to teach them the Torah. Okay. This is, this is why, how he made them converts to begin with. And then now they're struggling with certain issues, right? And some of these issues are some of them stands bad to meet. Well, that's, you got a problem. How are you going to celebrate Passover? This is when the temple was standing. So this means the Romans that he's speaking to, if they were in Asia minor or if they were in Greece or, you know, even in Italy, they could actually get on a boat just like Paul did in Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 18 and come back to Jerusalem for a feast, specifically for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and celebrate Passover, right? So, which means you need to be eating of a lamb or a goat to celebrate Passover. So he's trying to address people who come up with these uh, these these uh, issues, if you will, that they're bringing over from their, their pre-converted life Right when they were worshiping false religions, and many of those false religions pushed an idea of vegetarian slash veganism. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that's a decent answer for you. It had nothing to do with Sabbath, in my understanding. All right, guys. Um, oh, who the heck is Nate? Appreciate you, brother. Thanks. Glad you were able to see that. Yeah, hopefully, um, you know, he's still, we'll see, we'll see how this, how this goes. Hopefully he's still willing to do the full episode, but you never know. Sometimes people back out. Sometimes people get busy. Uh, but we'll see. We'll follow up with him. Okay. Alan Moyo is asking, did Yahweh use, did Yahweh use Jesus to create the heavens and the earth? Um, it's, it's my understanding that he is the father and that this, the son was with him by his side as everything's being created. And that if I'm mis, if I'm understanding Colossians chapter one, 15 through 17, also John chapter one, uh, verse two and three, that, um, that Yeshua was already existent before the world was starting to be created and everything being made by him through him and for him. Um, and there was nothing that was made that was not made, you know, through, through the word that became flesh, which is Yahuwah, uh, excuse me, which is Yahusha or Yeshua, how you want to say it, uh, the, the son of God, not the father, that he was there with him. And I don't I don't know if he was making everything through him somehow as far as what does that look like? You know, I, I don't exactly know, to be honest. Um, I just can give you the over general outline of what the scriptures describe, that Yeshua was existent with the father before all of creation, and he was somehow involved in the creation process. Um, I just don't know exactly what that looks like. So I apologize. I don't have a, I don't have like an answer from physics or from microbiology to tell you like exactly what that possibly looks like. But um, I, um, yeah, sorry, brother. It's not the best answer for you. Uh, Jim and Kenobi, appreciate you, brother. Thanks for the super sticker. That's awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, Bonnie, I I, uh, I lived there for four years, and I graduated in '98 from Plainview. One of the there's two schools in Ardmore, and I, I graduated from Plainview in '98. And my family and uh, lots of my family still live there. So, hmm. 
You know, Jubia, I don't know if I've dropped pounds. This is just what happens when you eat less sugar. You just start getting thinner. Appreciate it, brother. All right. So it looks like Isaac Underhill is asking, in the end of the Book of Jubilees, it's very clear that working on the Sabbath is worthy of the death penalty. In the Torah, why Moses had to ask Yahweh regarding the man gathering sticks? Well, it's a great question uh, because Exodus 16 comes before Exodus 24. So the whole book of Jubilees, if you read chapter one and chapter two, is the narration is is the angels, or specifically one angel, the angel that went before them in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. That's the dude talking to Moses throughout the whole book of Jubilees. It's it's a book that is just like Galatians 3.19. Um, what is it? Um, Hebrew, uh, Acts chapter seven, I think it's verse 53. And Hebrews 2.1. All through those verses expound to us that angels ordained, the word ordained in Greek is the word taught or explained. The angels explained the Torah, the word of the Lord, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that's what the book of Jubilees is. It's that 40 days that he was up there, the angels showed up, they're explaining all the law. And, in, and of course, as the book of Jubilees expounds, they're explaining the, the law that he's, he's be receiving so that he can teach the people well, they're having to teach it to Moses. Why? Because who are angels? They're a priesthood. What's a, pri a priesthood is supposed to know the law and teach it to the people. So that's literally what they're doing on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. But that is several, uh, like a month, if you will, or almost two months after Exodus 16. So that's why you would have chronologically, um, you know, Jubilee chapter 50, which is part of this conversation happening taking place in the time period of, of Exodus 24. So it would be actually a couple months after Exodus 16. So yeah, there was some stuff that even Moses was still needing to learn, right? Do you guys remember how, I think it's Exodus 33, or is it Deuteronomy 33? It talks about Moses was the meekest man alive. Well, you know, the word meek means he, he's willing to learn. He's able, he's teachable. So Moses, even though he's nominated to be the leader to bring these children of Israel out of Pharaoh's oppression and, and bring them to Mount Sinai so they can reaffirm the covenant and so they can, they can you know, start learning the covenant again, Moses didn't know it all either. He was still learning. So this is, this is why, this is one of the like backdrop reasons why the Exodus even happened. Yes, the oppression was bad, but it was also the people were being, they were being siphoned away from their faith because of what was going on in Egypt. They didn't know the words of the Lord. The average person didn't know it, and they weren't they weren't in a position to to learn it easily because they were under the oppression of Egypt. So it was stopping them from continuing their discipleship as descendants of Jacob, who had gone in the land of Goshen. So that's his um, actually what Jubilees chapter forty seven through forty nine expounds upon in the narrative, as it explains how the children of Jacob had went down into Goshen, lived in peace with one another, because they were all learning from Levi who had been nominated the high priest to teach him the Torah. And they were all, and Jacob was doing the Torah faithfully. And he was trying to teach all of his sons, grandsons and them and their sons after them, how to live in peace with each other and love with each other and do the actual Torah. They had the Torah, read Jubilees 32. They, they had it the whole time. This is what the book of Jubilees is explaining to Moses is that this is how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even all the way back to Adam, this is how they were called righteous. This was all the behavior they were doing because this is the behavior. That's the, the eternal instructions of the father written on the heavenly tablets. And this is the behavior we taught them. And this is the behavior we're teaching you to teach all the people um, at the base of the mountain. So uh, that's hopefully a decent, thorough answer for you, brother. 
Okay, guys. Um, link is at the bottom. If you want to call in and speak in person, you're welcome to. And uh, the link is scrolling in, in the ticker at the bottom. Also, um, you just type in the you know HTTPS StreamYard FMID 7KE3NB. Put that in your browser, and it'll, it'll call you into the show. Be ready to turn your mic and your camera. And you can ask me a question live. Otherwise, I'll try to take some of your questions from the chat. All right. So it looks like Scott McVicker is asking, to your knowledge, did the Native Americans partake in worshiping other gods in high places in the U.S. and Canada? Uh, to my knowledge, and unfortunately it's not, I don't profess to be a historian in Native American history, but I am Native American. I'm both Chickasaw and Cherokee. And I do know that there are certain tribes that were very violent, very cannibalistic, very uh, what we would consider to be pagan, right, worldly. And then there were other tribes that worshipped one great spirit to whom they had lots and lots of rituals that lined directly up with the Ten Commandments. And in fact, there's even been um, quite a few uh, anthropological, archaeological pieces, relics, found from Native American establishments with Paleo-Hebrew commandments written on them. One of them supposedly even has the name of Yehovah in Paleo-Hebrew written on it as well. Um, another one is an actual little artifact of the actual Ten Commandments uh, with a guy holding two tablets. And this is in a, I believe it was in a Cherokee settlement in North Carolina. So there are, yeah, there there was good tribes and there are bad tribes, just like every other people group around the world. So it's, you know, this is this is why people ask all the time and they're like, hey, well, what about those people that never heard about Jesus? Okay, what about the Native Americans who lived in the 1600s in, in North America? Did they ever hear about Jesus? Well, you'd have to try to figure out where they come from. Some people think they're the descendants that we read about in Second Ezra chapter 14 that had traveled a year's journey to, to come across to a land that no one, no one had ever lived in, which would have been four or 500 years before Yeshua even was born. So if that's true, and that they were literally of Israel, then they'd never heard about Jesus, supposedly. Right. I don't know. We don't really have a good documentation on how word spread throughout the world about this Messiah figure that was causing such waves around 2000 AD. But regardless, if they never heard about Jesus, there were still lots of cultures that had a choice to do the principles that were taught to them and their forefathers or to rebel and start doing wickedness. So. With that, this is why I've done an entire video on this. It's called Just Judgment. So if you go in the search bar on YouTube and you look up Kingdom of Context, Just Judgment, and I do like a 45 minutes on explaining from the Torah how Yeshua, our high priest and judge, when he returns and at the resurrections, how he judges the souls of men based off of their behavior according to the Torah, according to God's behavior, God's instructions for living. So um, regardless of the Native American tribe, they they had choices they brought with them through their ancestors and we do actually see archaeological and anthropological evidence of certain tribes actually having the same ten commandments um which is pretty interesting because that could mean second Ezra's is true that would be amazing right that second Ezra's 14 is 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 said to completely legit and what it talked about um you know about some of the ten tribes going off into the other parts of the world specifically what second Ezra talks about it so they could worship and follow the laws of Yahweh that they did not follow in the land that was given to their forefathers because they knew that they were scattered from that land. And that prophecy tells them that they weren't coming back. So they knew. So they just went somewhere else to go practice faithfully the laws of God. 
I think, I think when it, you know, hopefully that's encouraging to your brother as, as an answer. And I think that when we get to the father's house, when we, when we get to the resurrection and we get to go hang out with, with Yeshua and the angels, and we get to talk about, you know, uh, remember the angels are recording everything guys, Enoch, the book, first book of Enoch talks about that. Angels record everything you do and say, <laughs> this is what, why Yeshua in Matthew 12, I think it's 38 says that every year in a viewer's you'll be held accountable for every idle word indeed. Um, I, the angels are recording everything all across the plane of the earth throughout all of history. There's a lot of them and they're record keepers. I mean, they're, this is, this is a part of the priesthood as well, our scribes. So the angels have recorded everything that everyone has done and said in every culture and every, every place in history. And they know, they know which peoples are trying to do what's right and trying to not do what's right, right? They've all been recorded and been submitted to the Father, and it's going to be judged and evaluated by Yeshua, okay? And that's how he's going to determine um, how he judges those who he judges, which is exactly what I covered in that video, which is exactly what we see in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And also, Paul tries to expound this in Romans chapter 2, 14 through 20, uh, 7 through 14, Romans 2, 14, 7 through 14. So with that said, I mean, this is what we see in a, in a summary uh, version in Revelation 20, 15 through 20. Uh, the books are open. He reads all the deeds of each man before for the men. So the reason I'm saying that though is that just with the just like the Native American tribes, there was all types of other types of tribes and all over, you know, Asia, you know, the Mong Mongols and the whole area of Siberia and, and northern China and that whole region leading into Korean, you know, at that all of that stuff people that may have possibly been dispersed from, you know, Mesopotamian area and they still carried with them principles from the laws of God. This is why it's so interesting that I think when we get there and when we actually talk with the angels and Yeshua, they're going to have, they're going to be able to pull up in the books and be like, look, man, I know what you're thinking, but look at these people in Mesoamerica, right? Look at these people that were the, the early Aztecs before they, before they went corrupt. Here's where they came from. Here's the principles they brought with them. Here's the internal strife for hundreds of years as the enemy overtook them slowly through corruption, through their leadership. And then the new generations were taught corrupt behaviors, which led eventually to their downfall as a society, where they received the exact same punishments as we see in Deuteronomy 28 for the Israelites, like the Aztecs and the Mayans, right? So that's just one small, quick example. You're going to see that with all the people groups throughout all the nations, tribes, tongues, and languages of the earth. Right, because the angels have been keeping records of this stuff forever, and we're going to see where the Father sent His angels, all these little missions to give them the word of truth to help them. Like as you know, was it uh, Hebrews thirteen two talks about? You know, you may be entertaining angels unaware. Right, we see angels all over the place in Scripture, helping mankind, looking like men. So the Father just doesn't do that just for Israel; it's to help men who are in hell yourself who are going to inherit salvation. This is what Hebrews 1.14 talks about. Hopefully, I'm, uh, you know, I know, I apologize, uh, Scott, I'm, I'm straying a little bit from the question, but this is something that's just, it's on my heart a lot because I see so much conversation about, uh, so much conversation from uninformed believers trying to address this topic with uh, uninformed atheists, whom all of it completely underestimates the father and the system that he set up, which is with his angelic priesthood to be ministers to mankind. So all of it kind of forgets that bigger context is that we're not alone. The father has, in my opinion, millions upon millions 
of these angels that were there literally for us and they're out running around helping us all the time. We just don't see it. I think there'll be a beautiful day in the future. We're in their kingdom. We will get to see it. We'll get to read about it or have, you know, the, the record of it put up in some sort of video holographic display, or I don't know how, how it's going to happen. Right. But we'll get to see all the places where the father was helping societies and people groups do what's right and live by the things that were right. We never understood it. We never knew it. There's examples of it in the scriptures. There's lots of examples, actually, in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm going to give you two real quick, and then I, I got to move on to another question. But uh, the book of Job, right? The three kings that are his, called his friends that come to visit with him, they're all professing to be keepers of the Almighty's ways, which is his Torah. And they're from different kingdoms. And they're not Israel, neither, neither Job nor his three friends. They're not Israel. They're all actually Edomite kings or some variant thereof, possibly Midianite with some of them. But they're doing the ways of the father. I mean, we see like in Balaam, you know, Numbers 24, Balaam was, was this prophet that was from Midian. So he's not of Israel. Same thing we see in the book of Tobit as well as uh, the book of Jonah. Whereas the Assyrian king from Assyria, the people that had invaded the northern house of Israel, later repents and the entire kingdom turns to Yahweh. So I, I just, yeah, I think sometimes we kind of get myopic vision thinking about just the Bible and the verses therein, and we forget that the, the Father's been at work throughout the, the rest of the world for all of time. You know, so it's like it, it's going to be a beautiful day of, of realizing just how involved he was everywhere around the world, and we didn't see it. So, all right, we have a caller real quick. Bonnie, hi, thanks for calling in. Hey, how are you, Sean? I'm good. Hey, what's your question tonight? So a friend of mine, um, I've only been in the Torah walk uh, less than a year. Um, I came last April-ish. So um, there's a lot of things I still have questions on. And a friend of mine who's been in it for 20 years-ish um, told me that in the book of Matthew 28, verse 19, 20-ish, um, she said that the verse about um, Yeshua saying, go into the world and make disciples. She said that that's not in a lot of texts. And that's a good reason for me not to stay in my Christian church where I still serve because I feel like there's people that may need to know about Torah and know like this walk that's been such a blessing to our family. Um, I still serve there. I haven't felt like the father wants me to leave there. I sing on the worship team still. Like it's a big part of my life. And sure. she thinks that that's kind of, um, not necessary um and actually could be bad for me to stay in that environment so she's been doing it for 20 years and um so i would love to hear your thoughts on that sure well first thing i'd ask is how long have you been a believer in jesus as your messiah uh oh how long I, have you been in faith okay so I, yeah i mean such a child grew up in church um been in all churches all my life been on okay. worship teams for a long time. I had a prodigal period for 10 years, but always okay. proclaimed Jesus Messiah, et cetera. I still believe Jesus to Christians are Messiah you right, know, to right. them. It's, I don't yeah. believe that it, there's a difference. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you haven't, you haven't fallen into that Hebrew roots ditch right. of thinking that just because yeah, they use the, because the letter I, J somehow has changed God's. Right. And that's because yeah. I listen to you. <laughs> well, that's I appreciate you're it. You're one of the first that I listened to and it's blessed me a lot. Well, cool. That's a, that's a good compliment and honor. I appreciate you. Um, so I would also say, I want to encourage you that um, you have not been in Torah for a year, year and a half mm, since yeah. your faith right. in Yeshua 
as you've actively discipled in your heart to, to do your beha your behavior better and to be more like Yeshua, you've been in Torah. That's true. So be encouraged. Thank you. So that. there, there is no, there is no badge of seniority that your right. friend gets to hold over you. Right. You've been doing Torah just as long as she has. She just doesn't right. understand what the word Torah means, actually. Right. If, if that's her perception, right? Yeah. yeah. So I want to encourage you, um, and I, I would not say leave, leave your congregation if that's where you feel called to go minister to other. If you, if you feel like you've come to a place of understanding the scriptures that has brought you to a deeper walk in fellowship with the father, which is the tour process, right? We're learning his behavior. This is discipleship for mm -hmm. Sean two, three. If you think you've come to a better understanding of that, that has blessed you and helped you grow in your walk and you can share that with others. Why would you leave them? Right. 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 Well, what she said was that, that, that verse isn't in specific manuscripts. Therefore, regardless of that verse, there's so right. many other verses. <laughs> you know, right, that's that, right. that we don't need that one verse, by the way. I'm okay. sorry, I forgot right. to address that point. We don't yeah. need that one verse, uh, regardless of whether or not it's in all the manuscripts of the of the Greek New Testament or not. Uh, we've got plenty of verses where at it is the um it is the the common idea of anyone who understands the Torah to go out and explain it to other people. Right. In fact, do you mind holding for two minutes? I actually had this queued up for earlier in the show and I forgot to do it because it's answering questions. Yeah. So do you mind staying on the call real quick? And sure. I'm going to let, because this is perfect, but I had queued up earlier. I just forgot to play it. Okay, great. All right. Discipleship is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. We learn and teach others the loving behavior of the Almighty Father and His Son, our Messiah. Every person who believes and acts in faith is engaging in this process as a student. The Messiah tells us in Luke 6.40 that a disciple is not above his teacher, but once that disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. The process of learning from a teacher began in the beginning, appropriately named Genesis. In chapter 4, we see the Almighty teaching Cain to follow the instructions concerning first fruit offerings. After the flood, Jubilee 7.20 shows Noah also teaching his sons and grandsons the behavior of the Creator. Standing before a crowd of approximately 2 million Israelites in Exodus 18.20-22, Moses teaches a large congregation the behavior of the Creator. He also appoints honest men who love truth as judges over the matters of the people. The judges were expected to know righteous behavior and teach it to others as they presided over disputes among the people. In Psalm 143, 8 and 10, King David of Israel prays for more discipleship, asking the Almighty Father to teach him the behavior in which he should walk. The prophet Isaiah was also a teacher who trained disciples in the behavior of the Creator, while simultaneously acknowledging his own continued discipleship in Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Messiah gathered his disciples by promising them he would teach them to disciple others. He referred to this discipleship process as becoming fishers of men in Mark 1.17. Later, in Acts 15.19-21, Yeshua's disciples are discussing the best way to teach the Creator's behavior to new disciples. They rightly determined to start with the specific instructions from God's law found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. After all, they were only doing what the Son of God had taught them and admonished them to teach to all the nations in Matthew 28.18-20. If you like this, be sure to hit the heart button, shine it to other social medias, and check out other videos on our channel. We'll see you next time. That was awesome.
So there's a short summation you can give to your friend. Okay. I have that video on the channel. The reason why I wanted to play that during tonight's broadcast is because I uploaded it like two weeks ago, but hardly anyone watched it compared to my normal viewership. So don't know if it's an algorithm thing. Don't know if I uploaded it at the wrong time of day. I don't know. Either way, don't know if it's just the word discipleship, right? It's not exactly an attractive topic to a lot of people because no one really actually explains the idea, which is where we have misunderstandings like your friend is is trying to impose on you. Right. And with all due respect to your friend, you know, um, may, may the father bless her and keep her. But we see tons of examples in the Old Testament that if the father is calling you to go and spread his word to others, whether Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants you to do. Yeah. As I was just explaining with the, with the angels who go do that, I was just explaining Job, who was not of Israel. He was already a literal uh, uh, judge of Torah amongst his people as an Edomite king. Yeah. And we also see to, uh, Jonah, the famous story of Jonah, who's told to go to the Assyria. And he doesn't right. want to. He's like, they're my enemies. So how much more should our hearts be willing to go and minister the truth of his word and the fullness thereof to our fellow brethren who still may be immature in the word and, and on some milk, right? Those still in yeah. some mainstream churches, you know what I mean? So this is where if the father put on your heart to be there and to minister, and if it's a part of your walk with them that you're blessed of, and you can have the opportunity to share the fullness of his word with others there without right. causing strife and contention in that group, mm -hmm. by all means, let the father lead you, share his word, walk in love, you know, think about it like this. Like, you know, I'm not sure exactly what drew you to this, this uh, deeper understanding of, you know, the fullness of God's instructions for us in our discipleship. But you and I were both at one point sitting in a mainstream church, not knowing yeah. any different. Yeah. Someone had to tell us. And if, and if all the people that knew better or that knew a little deeper understanding of the word had isolated themselves from ever communicating with me, I would have never known. Right. right. How sad and tragic would that be? So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're on the right track. Keep it up. Awesome. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good night. All right, guys. I appreciate uh, your calls. I appreciate your questions. Um, let me see here. <laughs> um, we got a question about dinosaurs, guys. It happens every now and then. She's uh, Lee McDonald's asking, can you speak on dinosaurs? My Bible college taught that they were on the ark. I feel that they were part of the corrupt flesh that was destroyed in the flood. And I wonder your thoughts, not the behemoth and Leviathan. Okay. So, you know, with all the shenanigans we have from modern day um, anthropology and archeology span concerning dinosaurs and, you know, the fake specimens that they found and then were found out later, they were just literally fabricated. Um, with all, and, and that there are some real specimens that have been found, and those have been ignored also. Uh, some that supposedly were lizard like, with um, you know, they claimed it was a T Rex, but you know, that that was also was an assumption. But they they had found, I think it was in like Detroit uh, or Michigan or Minnesota, they had found what they thought was the remnants of a bone of a T Rex, and then that it was actually live blood cells inside when they when they opened it up and and they were like oh my gosh how how is this 65 million years old well for one we you know obviously the bible does not teach an evolutionary mentality there's not millions of years um and any type of lizard creature any type of reptile um they can grow bigger with time so i very i very much believe just like whatever conditions were 
were, were different before the flood that allowed mankind to live such a much longer lifespan, it would also apply to the reptiles. So therefore you can have possibly a snapping turtle suddenly gets, you know, much bigger over five, 600 years. And suddenly he looks more like a uh, triceratops or something, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Now, I do agree with your statement to some degree. I just can't validate any of it. All we can go by is Jubilees chapter five and Genesis chapter six, and is this idea that they were mixing the kinds of animals. They were trying to to interbreed the species um, as a part of corrupting all flesh, as Genesis six eleven through thirteen expounds. So, therefore, yes, you are going to have not only the corruption of mankind's flesh with the Nephilim, but also the mixing of the species, like First Enoch, Jubilees, and Genesis also references specifically First Enoch, Jubilees. Genesis just references generally in verses 11 through 13, but um, but it's expounded upon more in First Enoch and Jubilees. And so, yeah, I do. There, I think there was some of that involved as well. But we see that type of shenanigans in the mixing of species even after the flood, um, in you know all the chimeras of ancient Greece, and I've I've done shows on them, you know, with ancient Babylonian chimeras and the Egyptian chimeras. Um, that was a common practice of the Nephilim of, of wickedness that was, it's still happening today, by the way. It's just much more underground and it's in white coat labs as opposed to being the sorcery of the magicians of Egypt or of ancient Greece or the, you know, the tribe of Apollyon or whatever with the, with the Minotaurs and the Centaurs. So I think that um, dinosaurs specifically, we don't have evidence of the types of dinosaurs that I understand, and, and I'm not claiming to be an expert. Um, on all types of archaeological expeditions. But from what I understand about the actual bones that they claim, they extrapolate out and they say, oh, we found this, but it's supposed to be the size of a brontosaurus. Oh, and then they've got, you know, all these other types of sauruses that are supposedly bigger than that. And so a lot of it is is just fabricated extrapolation from guesswork and theory based off of minute evidence, right? It's, a lot of it is, is large leaps and conclusions. This is how they get grant and funding money, right? Because it's all built upon the backdrop of their evolutionary theory, which is already accepted in academia. So therefore they can put any theory on top of that and get funding. It's just, you know, and there's a lot of it. That's a, that's a huge scam. So if you're trying to exclude Leviathan and Behemoth, um, I think regardless of those two specific ones mentioned, create on day five, according to second Ezra six, I think that there's other large lizards and animals, other types of Leviathan animals that are in the sea is, I think it's Psalm 104 and Psalm 74 mentions. And uh, the book of Job def definitely uh, talks about, I think it's in chapter 41 and the Septuagint that refers to different types of Leviathan. Um, but specifically though, there is uh, creatures that were made by the father that are massive. And then there's creatures that I think the enemy tried to, to replicate and also mix the species of that were larger than we have today because they were, they were pre-flood. Um, so therefore, like I said, you live longer because reptiles don't never stop growing supposedly. So, um, and if you can make big men, you can make big animals. It's not that hard. So, and I think you're kind of on the right track. Um, I don't think that I think lizards and, and all types of animals of different kinds were brought on the ark, but specifically the types of dinosaurs that have been taught to us since probably you and I were children, that's all a fabrication of the modern age. They used to be called, um, in the 1800s, they were just called, um, not lizards, but uh, dragons. They were just called dragons. <laughs> just large lizards, and many of them had different types of capabilities and looks to them. They just called them dragons.
Anyway, that's a really big topic, and I'm trying to give you a super short answer. I apologize if it seems a little too brief, um, but that's a huge topic. I mean, just hopefully that's a decent answer for you. Okay, guys, uh, scrolling through the chat here. Okay, looks like Daily, or excuse me, Dolly Jacobson is asking, why is there no interest? Why is there no interest who the 12 tribes scattered abroad spoken of by James 1R? Um, I believe we are they. Okay, sure. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. If you're if you've asked a, a previous question that I missed or whatever, but I've never um, refused interest in this in James chapter one, and uh, I just I mean it's like a like I said before it's kind of like a show in itself as far as trying to trace where all the different scattered tribes of Israel went. Um, but I'll put on screen real quick this passage for the viewer to know what you're referring to, and that's going to be here in just the first opening. Introduction of James 1, and he just says, James, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So, yeah, he's he's definitely trying to write a letter. I don't know exactly where he how the, he thought this letter was going to get disseminated uh, to all those, but maybe they made copies and passed it around uh, to their different missionary journeys that they would send their 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 disciples. Uh, you know, the, this is James, the half-brother of Yeshua, one of the leaders and friends of the disciples in Jerusalem, we see in Acts 15, they also had other people that were under them learning that would go out on missionary trips as well. So maybe he's sending it out through different people. Also, it could just be the Passover that happened after Acts 2. That's something to keep in mind that a lot of people never talk about. Is We see in Acts 2, all the people that come in from the different nations that were coming in to celebrate Passover. So this is part of the 12 tribes that were dispersed and scattered that are coming back to Jerusalem to keep Passover. And they're from all these different nations, right? Because that's where they've been scattered. So James could have written a letter at any one of those Passovers before the temple was destroyed in approximately AD 70. So from the time of Yeshua, it's about 30 years worth of Passovers that James would have been alive for, that all these dispersed and scattered Jews who had the finances and availability, uh, who weren't in active captivity, and they could come back to Jerusalem uh, inside the travel allowances of the Roman Empire to actually celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover um, every year, they would have they were coming back, as we see in Acts 2. They were trying to do it. So therefore, James could just write this letter and hand it out to all of them while they show up in town. You know, so um, yeah, he's hopefully trying to encourage them with all that. And yeah, they're scattered abroad. It's just the records of who they, which tribe they were from and where they went after they were all scattered. That's the tricky part. So if you have a, if you know anyone that does a really good study on it, then welcome to suggest that in the chat. Uh, James Henry is asking, is Messiah Yeshua omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent? All right, so these are Catholic terms right off the bat. I'm just to let you know, I know, I know you're not Catholic, but I, this is stuff that um, we, these are terms that carried over to Protestant preachers in the 17, 18, 1900s from Catholicism. And these are ideas uh, that go back to the 4th and 5th century from Catholic uh, priests and philosophers. Omniscient, knows all things. If he's connected to the Spirit of the Father, he has the fullness of the Spirit within him. He's not the Father, but he has all the information of the Father as the Father allows him through his Holy Spirit. 
in some regard, he could have access to all the information. Does it presently flow in every thought that he has at all times? I, I don't know. It doesn't really describe like that. Remember, he's a resurrected man. He came, this is what 1 Timothy 3.16 tries to express, the idea that he was, he did have a spirit body with the Father, and then he came to mankind, born of a woman, and then he died and was resurrected as a glorified man back to a new creation, which is this glorified man, that a man that has been given a spiritual body that is similar to the angels, but is considered a new creation, something that's never been made before. So he now exists as that. That's why First John, First. Uh, First Timothy 2.5 can still call him a man who's interceding between mankind and the Father. Does he have all knowledge at all times? I, I don't know if, how it works like that with the, the Spirit being able to flow through you in your new spiritual body like that. I mean, he may have access to all knowledge, but does it like just presently dwelling in him like he's a huge hard drive? I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, is he omnipresent? No. No, he's not. He's a, he has a body. It's a physical body. He has a job he's doing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 5. He's in, he's in the tabernacle of heaven, literally bringing forth fellowship meals, which are called sacrifices to the Father. Um, on our behalf, he has a job to do. He's our high priest. That is a literal job with literal requirements for him. So he's doing that for us faithfully. And is he omni omnipotent? Omnipotent. Sure. Sure. She could be omnipotent. I mean, if it's like, it's... Let's say this. Um, again, the spirit's flowing through him. So, you know, it. Let's put it like this: he's he's been given all authority and power on earth. All of this given to him from the Father. He's got the spirit without limit. He could do whatever he wanted, but that's not the will of the Father for him. So he won't. So, to say he's omnipotent is kind of like a mute point, if you will, in my understanding. No, you know, no offense to anyone that claims he's omnipotent. Yes, sure, he could be omnipotent, but that's not what's prophesied of what he actually is, what he's going to be, what he's going to do. Like he has a job that's outlined for him. He's doing that faithfully. He doesn't need to be omnipotent. The Father's got all these other pieces in motion, and his angels doing all these other pieces and facets of the of the big story. And you know, the Shua can flow through the power of the Father according to what the Father has granted the Son to do. So even though he has more power than the angels and he has more authority than the angels, he's still given all that through the Father. So at one point, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, he's going to turn it back over to the Father. So it's to, to say he's omnipotent would be technically yes, but he has no need for it. He's still just doing whatever the Father tells him to do. That's how. That's why he's our faithful Messiah. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. It looks like we have a, a caller calling in real quick. Christian. Hey, Christian, what's up? Hey, how are you? First off, I just want to say it's, it's an honor, man. I've been uh, looking up to you for like since this whole madness started and I left college, turned right with God, been watching your videos, uh, Honor of Kings. Great. Oh, man. It's, it's gotten me into like obeying Torah more and more. So thank you. Oh, cool. um, Thanks, yeah, man. yeah. It's awesome. Um, so I appreciate it. I just, uh, I guess I wanted to ask. Um, being new into this, you know, only a, like a few months, I guess, in, I've seen a lot um, with the, how do you explain it? The the 13th month and this Passover, when do we celebrate it? Because um, I got like the whole Sefer collection and I have the calendar, but I know calendars are different. Mm -hmm. um, so I just where, didn't know. Where'd you get the 13th month idea? Uh, I was, I so I also watched Parable of the Vineyard. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know he was talking about that and he's celebrating it i think a month later 
than it would normally be celebrated. So I just, I didn't know because I watch, you know, I watch you hanging on his words and him, you know, I've been getting mm -hmm. into the whole thing here. And uh, I don't know. I just wanted to know because I want to, you know, I want to do the best of my ability and I pray on it and stuff. But, you know, he's led me to you a lot. So I look up to you and, you know, I just wanted to ask and it's, you know, an honor to be on here. Cool, cool. So help me understand specifically your question. If you could yeah. put it in one sentence. Okay. So um, when when are you celebrating Passover this year? Well, it, it won't it will be within usually it depends on how the calendar falls. I don't remember the exact date right now, but usually last couple of weeks of March or early April. All right, yeah, yeah. Cause I yeah, because I was doing it uh I was going to do it, I think, March 27th, 28th, around there is when, you know, my books say, you know, based on what I've been looking at. But I didn't know because some were saying later down in April. And um, so I just didn't know, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, here's the thing we try to remind everybody. And if you're if you're kind of still new to the channel in the last year or so, um, you may not have seen our kingdom portions where we reviewed this a couple of years ago, but it's okay. We don't stress a calendar on this channel. Okay. Because of all the different uh, circumstances in history that have caused us to, to lose the calendar. That's actually what the previous caller, one of the first callers tonight, we were talking about the calendar with the new moons and things like that and why um, there is uh, some fellow brothers out there with My House Ministries, both Zach and Micah. And I want to have a show with them where we discuss the calendar because they claim that there is a place in Enoch that they and, and Mike and Zach, if you're watching, if I'm getting this wrong let's do the show quickly so I cannot misquote this again. But um, from what I, I understood their claim was, was that there's a place in first Enoch that they have deduced tells us the beginning of the year, even translated into our Gregorian calendar today so that we can find the beginning of the year every year. And if that's true, I would love to see that information and test it for myself. So that's what we're going to have a show about. Because if that is true, then we can better discern the start of the year, which is, you know, be more in line with all the different Passover, uh, all the different feasts, as well as all the new moon celebrations. So unfortunately, that is something I'm going to test as a claim I'm going to test from them. But because of the way history has played out with uh, the scattering of the believers and all the different you know empires that believers have had to live under, from my understanding, we do not have the actual correct calendar anymore. And so it is um, it is something we're still studying, if you will, on this channel, uh, like I just explained. But um, some people fall into claiming they know exactly the, the right calendar. But then I start to ask them questions as how do you prove that? How do you can you show me your work? Basically, you know how you got to that conclusion and I never get a straight answer. So this, uh, this has been a very challenging topic to actually find a definitive conclusion on that I can prove 10 different ways from scripture. Because that's that's how, if you've seen me for a year now, hopefully you understand. Mm -hmm. I don't just spout my own opinion. I try to, everything I say and teach, I try to, you know, back up with scripture from 10 different angles to show you the full rounded context of like, this is how we can be confident and that what this is saying and what this is instructing us to do. The calendar issue is a very difficult one. And in my opinion, it was made difficult on purpose going all the way back to Antiochus Epiphanes in the third century BC. So there's a lot to it. Unfortunately, um, I'm, I've currently been following the My House Ministries calendar. My wife and I have been doing that for like the last year and a half, two years, um, because it's more in line with Enoch and Jubilee calendar. So that's the uh, probably the best way I could describe it without having 
done the show that I mentioned already and having a, a broader conversation on this um, and trying to acknowledge that the enemy has intentionally obfuscated this topic to confuse us and uh, to, but your salvation doesn't depend on it. Yes. So if you say, say you're an Israelite, um, you know, from the kingdom of Dan, from the, from the tribe of Dan, and you're invaded by the Assyrians and approximately, you know, 720 BC, and you were scattered to the furthest reaches of the Assyrian empire to Britannica, modern day England. And from there, you, you know, you're in captivity for 20, 30 years. And then there's a change of power in Assyria and suddenly that captivity dispersed. And now you're just like an indentured servant to, to whomever your former uh, owner was. Okay. I'm giving you a kind of a weird scenario, but the point is you then at that point, that's approximately, you know, uh, 700 BC now, and you're not in captivity anymore, but you're also not in the land of Israel anymore. And you've been under, you're trying to figure out still how to, how to, you can't keep the feast. You can't even get back to them. You don't have the money to get back to them. And you don't even remember which day the feasts were because you haven't been in Israel to keep the calendar that they followed through Jubilees. So if you don't know how to judge it by this, by the sun and moon and their, and their courses in the heaven, then is the father going to somehow count it as sin against you? If you're trying to keep Passover or Sukkot or uh, Shavuot, but you're doing it on the wrong day, like, you know, the general season and the general month even, but you just can't remember the exact, you, you can't line it up to find the exact day. Is the father going to penalize you for that in some way, some mortal sin that, you, that, you know, no, he's not, Yeah. no, he's not. He's going to do, you're in dispersion as prophesied and you're trying to keep his behavior, which is what he even claims in multiple places. He even talks about in Jeremy chapter 30, verse one and two, while you're dispersed in the lands that you've been scattered and you call to mind my instructions, my commandments. So this, this has happened all throughout history and all the different times that Israel been scattered. Um, I don't think it's a salvation issue. Do your best is what I would say, right? Do your best. Go ahead and, you know, find a calendar that you feel confident with, pick it, choose a date, celebrate it, make your, your memorial meal, take a day off because it's the Sabbath, right? Don't work that yep. day. Enjoy time with the father and just be at peace knowing that you're doing your best with the information you have, knowing that you don't have all the pieces and he knows you don't have all the pieces. This is all the, the time period that we're in was literally prophesied to us. So that way you can, still enjoy the fellowship and they're called feasts of joy. They're supposed to be anyway. So that way you can still celebrate them with joy and enjoy your Sabbaths with joy and not be bogged down thinking that you're somehow creating some eternal sin by not celebrating on the right day, because we've gone through multiple different calendars in the last 2,600 years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I like what you said about the, uh, the Sabbath thing and, you know, you know, you know, joy. Cause I used to, you know, kind of stress about that a lot. Um, I'm uh, still looking for a new job and I have to make sure I don't get that. I, I get those off. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm blessed to have that time off right now, searching to, to be able to celebrate. He, he redeemed me. I got baptized, you know, in January. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. So I love it. Um, but I'm with a group. He led me to them, but they don't mm -hmm. still, you know, some think, you know, Jesus is God all alone and stuff like that. So I'm kind of like still like waiting for, to get in there and explain, you know, I want to give them the context, you know, I love, I love, that's why I love your channel. You know, you give the context and put it, you make it so like clear, you know, thanks to y'all. And I, I praise y'all for that, but yeah, thank you. And, um, Hey, no problem, brother. Yeah. 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 yeah um, you know, 
if if you find it uh, convenient, uh, you know, maybe ask your friends because there's a lot of us in that scenario, right? Not everybody comes to the same information at the same time. Okay, so when I became a believer, I had other friends that became believers, but I, I'm the guy reading my Bible every day, <laughs> and they they weren't. So there was a difference in growth patterns, right? I wasn't perfect by any means. I desired to be to change my behavior at a faster rate than some of the people around me. Let's just put it like that. Was I still struggling with, you know, sins and different problems and issues as a young man? Of course, of course. But I desired to change in a, in a serious. So you're always going to face that amongst groups of brothers and friends. One of you comes to the faith or even all of you come to the faith. You're not all going to grow in the same pace. So as a result of that, be patient with them and maybe slip, you know, maybe slip a link to my video every now and then say, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, just be subtle about it. Saw this, yeah, saw this, and it brought some questions up. What do you guys think about this? Check this out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother, and uh, y'all yeah. bless. Seriously, I appreciate it. Uh, it's awesome. All right, um, well, thanks, Christian. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Have, have a good one, and uh, yeah. keep up the good work. Shabbat shalom, brother. Shabbat shalom. Okay, guys, it is uh, the end of the show. I appreciate all the questions. Uh, appreciate everybody interacting in the chat. Uh, a lot of good questions. I appreciate everybody being peaceful in the chat. Um, enjoy your Sabbath. You know, do it in peace. Get some rest, which sometimes is joyful in itself. <laughs> Just getting a lot of good rest. And um, I really appreciate it. As you guys saw earlier, uh, we are, as I, as I played at the opening of the show tonight, um, we are going to be doing a new series I'm working on. It's going to take time because I have to interview a bunch of people. Um, on their ongoing interviews, but I've got to, I haven't gotten to everybody that's volunteered for it yet. So it's called every word and it's a new devotional series we want to do, but because of the, the amount of work that goes into like getting the actual presentation of the information to, to you, the viewer, uh, it takes a lot of editing and a lot of, uh, background coordination with people with, with you, the viewers, because that's the idea is I'm going to actually interview the viewers of kingdom and context and devotional series about different commandments, specifically about uh, how all the, all the commandments um, hang on the great two, right? The love Lord, your God, Lord, your whole strength of mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So, um, and I'm going to be showing through that series and through conversations with them, how they all funnel under those two categories. Um, but it just takes a lot of production time. So please be patient. I know I announced it like last week, I think, and I'm still um, reaching out behind the scenes with different people and collaborating uh, with those who are going to be involved, but hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. Um, hopefully it'll be something that, you know, if you want to participate as well in the future, kingdom and context at gmail.com. And that way, you know, we consider you for one of the episodes. If you want to be interviewed for one of the episodes, um, but hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. It's just something I've never done on this channel before, the type of format it is. And it's it's kind of new for me. So I'm going through a learning curve, if you will, of how to compile it and edit it and present it in the right way that I feel is going to you know, be best best presented. So appreciate you guys. Pray for me. Um, pray, for, pray for Lighthouse. I know it sounds like a business, but it's, a, it's actually a ministry in its own right. Um, so pray just... Uh, Pray for that to, to be able to um, be ready to rock and roll sooner than later. And uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you guys for showing up. We will see you next. Um, I'll see you tomorrow morning for tour apologetics for the tour portions.